Hi, I'm Lisa Chantler. Welcome to Clinically Thinking. Clinically Thinking is a podcast by clinical psychologists for clinical psychologists. In this podcast, we interview the best of the best in clinical psychology from around the world. If you Google Alan Francis, almost all the top responses begin with the words, one of the world's most influential psychiatrists. For much of his distinguished career, Dr. Francis worked in clinical and teaching roles at Cornell Medical College. In 94, he was head of the task force writing the DSM-4. In 2009 and 10, Dr. Francis began to voice warnings about the revisions being proposed for the upcoming DSM-5. He began writing a weekly blog in Psychology Today under the title DSM-5 in Distress, the DSM's impact on mental health practice and research. Dr. Francis expressed his concerns about lowering the diagnostic thresholds for disorders such as ADHD, autism, addictions, and mood disorders, and he warned that mental health was on a path of overdiagnosis and overuse of psychiatric pharmaceuticals, particularly for young people. Dr. Francis is perhaps best known for his 2013 book, and I'll include its subtitle, which tells you what to expect, Saving Normal, An Insider's Revolt Against Out-of-Control Psychiatric Diagnosis, DSM-5, Big Pharma, and the Medicalization of Ordinary Life. This podcast is traditionally a clinical psychology podcast, and although Dr. Francis is a psychiatrist and not a clean psych, we are sure you'll agree that this topic is relevant to our work, and we are honoured to have him as our guest. Dr. Francis, thank you for your time today. Truly my pleasure. Can we start by meeting the man behind the book? Well, I guess there was a push and a pull that got me to be a psychiatrist. It was important in my family that I be a doctor. Uh And unfortunately, I I was terrible at doing all the procedures that a doctor would have to do. And so to some degree, psychiatry was a default position. But the other part, the uh, pull part was that I had started reading Freud as a teenager. I was very interested in um, what made people tick, what made me tick. And I liked talking to people. So it seemed like if I had to be a doctor, being a psychiatrist was a very good compromise. And a natural progression. When you were a young psychiatry graduate, um, what sort of work excited you the most? Uh, Psychotherapy. Now, I went into psychiatry because I was fascinated with psychotherapy. And I was at the transition point between the what had been the predominance of psychoanalysis in psychiatry uh, up until about the uh, about 1970, then biological psychiatry became much more important, and I had to learn it, and I had to um, run departments that were based on um, medication being an important part of psychiatry, and I treated very sick patients who needed medication. Mm-hmm. But my first love, I think, was always psychotherapy. Yeah, you would have seen a, a, a great swathe of change of your career wouldn't you oh yeah yeah the the, uh, after world war ii psychiatry did not have separate departments in medical schools until after world war ii and uh, psychoanalysts had been very important in the war effort in america and one had become a general and there was an excitement about psychoanalysis after the war and so when the new departments of psychiatry were established in the u.s 
1945 to 50, almost all of the chairs were, were um, psychotherapy, psychoanalytically inclined. But by 1970, there was a beginning of a switch just when I was completing training. And within 10 years, almost all of the chairs of psychiatry in America were biologically inclined because the money coming from NIMH was going to biological studies. And mm. these were more desirable candidates for medical school. So I was a transitional person starting out with a psychotherapy interest. And certainly I had to be and was interested in the biology of the brain and how medications would help my very sick patients. But I had a balance that would have only been possible for people who who started in the field earlier. Hmm. Very interesting. Your title now is Professor and Chairman Emeritus of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioural Sciences at Duke University School of Medicine. It doesn't sound like you've retired. Uh, how is your time filled each day? Well, mostly retired. I spend a lot of time on the beach and swimming, <laughs> but um, I also spend a lot of time uh, reading, watching movies, and um, we're still very much involved with our five grandchildren. Um, however, I do um, I do lots of podcasts like this one. Right. I do talks, um, write some blogs, write some papers, but I'm mostly retired at this point. Fantastic. You've written extensively about diagnostic inflation. So what was the first indication you had that in your mind mental health was heading down this perilous path? Well, it hit me at the very beginning. I was on, in, in my residency training in 1968, I was on a unit that kept patients in for a year. And it seemed to me most of them were way too healthy to be on inpatient service. And I saw all the defects of a hospital stay that we think of hospital stays as being therapeutic, but for many patients, I think it made them much worse. We terribly over-medicated because at that point, we didn't, the medicines were new and we didn't know what the doses should be, and we tended mm. to give way too much medicine. Mm. Um, I, I was troubled by this as a resident. By, in my early career, I continued to be troubled by it. And 40 years ago, I wrote a paper called No Treatment as the Treatment of Choice, feeling okay. that for many patients, treatment was actually harmful rather than helpful. So when I was asked to um, take over the uh, role of uh, head of the DSM-4, my inclination, my experience told me that the system was expanding too quickly, that we're, we were over-diagnosing people who were really more on the um, fuzzy spectrum of mm. mental illness, but not really within it. And my effort in DSM-4 was to contain uh, over diagnosis. We, we succeeded in most instances, but we failed, especially in terms of autism and, and bipolar disorder and attention deficit disorder, that despite our careful efforts to keep the system tame, to tame the system, these three epidemics of mental illness happened after DSM-4, partly triggered by DSM-4. So I, I, when DSM-5 started, and the effort was um, clearly in the direction of expanding the system rather than containing it, mm. I became concerned and active again. Mm. So you've had a very, very long interest uh, in this notion of diagnostic inflation, not just not just 20 years, but almost your whole career. Well, actually, all well, my whole career. The, yeah, the very yeah, start right. of my career was being... Um, involved in what seemed to me to be excessive medication and excessive diagnosis. And I've been in touch with a number of the patients that I treated who were 
diagnosed as schizophrenic, misdiagnosed as schizophrenic in 1968. And after they got away from us, uh, did very well and have, have led very productive lives. So I think it, it, it's very important to, to balance this with the fact that there are about 5% of the population have a severe psychiatric disorder. And those 5% of the population are terribly neglected in the United States, and I think also in Australia. Their desperate needs are not met. At the same time, with a cruel paradox, people who don't need as much treatment as they're getting are over-treated and over-medicated. So mm -hmm. we have the terrible misallocation of resources away from the people who really need them. Um, with a severe mental illness, you're probably going to need medication for the long-term, maybe, life. You're going to need social supports. You're going to need housing. Yes. There are lots of, of things that go into taking adequate care of the severely ill that we're not doing. At the very same time, we're devoting resources in over-treating people who might do well without treatment. So there's a terrible misallocation of resources that's bad for the people with severe illness who are neglected and bad for the people with mild illness or no, no illness at all who are over-treated. Okay, so currently in Australia, adult ADHD seems to be on the rise and as does autism in both adults and children diagnostically. Given that Saving Normal was published like 10 years ago, if you were to write a revised edition now, what would you say has happened in the intervening time and what do you think lies in the future? Things have gotten worse. Um, with ADHD, there's overwhelming evidence. Um, studies in 10 countries with uh, tens of, I think it's over 10 million patients, have shown that the best predictor of childhood ADHD is your birthday. Mm. That the youngest kid in the class is almost twice as likely as the oldest kid in the class to get a diagnosis of attention deficit disorder. Mm. There's only one way in the world. This is one of the most robust findings in psychiatry, and there's only one way in the world of explaining it, and that is that simple immaturity is being misdiagnosed as a mental disorder in children. That classroom chaos leads teachers to pick out the kids in the class who are causing the most difficulty, and they will normally be the youngest kid in the class because mm. he's the most mature, yep. and declaring him as a mentally disordered kid, often getting medication. So it, it's absolutely clear that we're over-diagnosing children with ADHD. The rate more than tripled between when we published DSM-4 and now. And the reason for that tripling was that the drug companies brought new, new products to market that were much more expensive than the previous ADHD drugs. Mm -hmm. And this gave them both the motive and the means to publicize ADHD to parents and teachers as a major misdiagnosis in kids. And what it led to was a rebound in which way too many kids are being diagnosed. So that the, the father of ADHD, Keith Connors, who died a few years ago, spent the last part of his life saying this diagnosis, which I was part of the you know, founding group, pioneer in this area, mm. is being way over-diagnosed. The rates have tripled in the U.S., and they've increased in every country, including Australia. It's been a yes, big in Australia. That the, the, rate, the rate of ADHD is way too high. The rate of medication is way too high. And now the latest aspect of this, and very disturbing, is a fad of diagnosis of adult ADHD. Yes, indeed. Tell us about that. I'm really 
the concept of ADHD is it has to start in childhood. The symptoms have to begin in childhood. And the reason for that requirement is that almost every psychiatric disorder results in problems in attention, and many of them result in problems with um, activity. Mm-hmm. So all psychiatric syndromes can be easily misdiagnosed yes. as adult ADHD in people where those symptoms arise in adulthood, plus the fact that normal people would all like to concentrate better. Indeed. Would all like to be more focused at work. And the pills have a temporary effect of helping people to concentrate. But that benefit is not worth the harms that can be done. And especially in people who have a psychiatric disorder that uh, is misdiagnosed as adult ADHD and given stimulant medication, the last thing you want to do for someone with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia is give them a stimulant medication. And so this uh, tendency to diagnose adult ADHD in people who have not had childhood symptoms can lead to um, major mistakes in medication mismanagement. Mm. And so it should be very clear that the diagnosis should never be used unless there's a childhood onset. But when a diagnosis becomes a fad and psychiatry, the history of psychiatry going back 2,500 years has been a history of fads. When there's a popular diagnosis, and especially now with the internet, it tends to be way overused. And that's what's happened with, with ADHD. Absolutely. And we'll come on to that. To bring Australians, um, to bring us Australians up to speed, we're interested to know how the roles of family doctor, psychiatrist, and clinical psychologist um, overlap or support one another in the American system. And I ask this because often um, Australian life follows a US trend, you know, just a few years later. So how should we in Australia avoid the kind of pitfalls you're describing? It's probably too late, but what would your thoughts be about that? The biggest um, problem causing the overuse of medications is that 80% of them in the U.S. are prescribed by primary care doctors, not by psychiatrists. So 90% of of anti-anxiety drugs, which are terrible drugs for most people, causing ridiculously difficult withdrawal syndromes, the Xanax-type drugs, 90% are prescribed by primary care doctors. 80% of antidepressants are prescribed by primary care doctors, 60% of stimulants, and 50% of antipsychotics. The primary care doc often has very little time with the patient, usually 10, 15 minutes. They usually have huge panels of patients, so they don't know them well. They Mm -hmm. don't have time for follow-up. They see the patient on the worst day of their lives, the patient's worst day of their lives. And the patients in the U.S. have been primed by advertisements to ask doctors for medication and the most efficient way to get a patient out of a primary care doctor's office is to write a script. And so all this conspires to have wild over-diagnosis and over-medication in primary care. It's a problem also in psychiatry, but it's especially a problem in primary care because 80% of the medication, psychiatric medications in the U.S. are prescribed by primary care doctors, usually after 10 or 15 minute interviews. It's always better to underdiagnose than to diagnose. Once you give a diagnosis, it tends to be written yeah. in stone. Psychiatric diagnoses should be written in pencil. They should be hypotheses. And the rush to judgment about diagnosis often leads to, to massive overdiagnosis and overuse of medications. Do you think it would be wiser, for example, if some of those medications were limited 
to being prescribed by psychiatrists rather than by what we call in Australia our GPs, our general practitioner? I think the problem there is that you might get under treatment. So I think that the, the optimal situation, and, and people in Australia have been very instrumental in trying to avoid uh, uh, overtreatment, to publicize the problems of overtreatment in psychiatry and all of medical specialties. The problem of overtreatment, overdiagnosis is not restricted to psychiatry. It's a problem throughout medicine, and Australia has been in the forefront of trying to point out these problems. I think that um, the, the, in an optimal situation, it would be that we train primary care doctors to um, be very careful in their diagnosis, to have multiple visits before they make a diagnosis, before they begin medication. The more time the doctor has with the patient, the better they know the patient, the better the longitudinal follow before starting medicine, the less medicine will be used. If psychiatry is increasingly becoming about prescribing drugs, does that mean that psychiatry and, say, clinical psychology will be drifting further apart? Well, they have drifted further apart. So that psychiatrists, because of the way the insurance work, system works in the U.S., psychiatrists themselves have much less time with patients and uh, are much more likely to be involved in just the medication part of treatment rather than the psychotherapy. I think my attitude toward this is that every contact with a patient, however short it is, is a, a psychotherapy contact. That I've had some of the best results of my life in the emergency room, seeing people uh, for 15 minutes after they've been presented to me. I've had many people come up to me in the hallways years later saying, Doc, you probably don't remember me, but you said this had changed my life. I've also had the experience of treating people in psychotherapy for 10 years or more and having relatively little or no impact. It's not necessarily the duration of treatment or its intensity that determines how well patients do. It's your ability to find something important to say, a magic moment, where you're able to say something that patient will remember. And the patient's ability, more than ours, patients are our best teachers and patients do most of the work in getting better that to the degree a patient has an open mind, and especially if they're under stress, where the existing instability makes them more flexible in hearing new ways of seeing the world and, and changing their behaviors, that mm -hmm. even a 20-minute visit can have an important impact. And psychotherapists should always be alert to the fact that the next thing you say may be very important for the patient. There should never be a dull psychotherapy session because the opportunity is always there to make a big impact. Indeed, words matter, don't, don't they? Words matter in therapy. The long-term cost of mental health treatment is a big consideration, both for governments providing public mental health services and particularly for individuals paying for private treatment. Has an expansion of DSM diagnoses meant that people are getting more access and better treatment or something else? Well, at least in the U.S., it's meant a total neglect of the severely ill, that there's a lot of concern about, especially with COVID, a lot of concern about the, um, the rising rates of, of suicide in teenagers, the rising rates of anxiety and, and depression in uh, the general population, and many more resources have been dedicated to, to the group of people who may need them but don't need them nearly as much as the severely ill. So we have in the United States 600,000 severely ill patients who are either homeless or in jail, psychiatric patients. 
for want of treatment. And that's the great shame of, of our country, that the overall resources for psychiatry and psychotherapy are, are way too limited. But in addition to the fact that the the denominator is too small, the way it's distributed uh, t terribly neglects the people who most most need the resources. Mm -hmm. and I think that we have to also distinguish between the aches and pains and emotional um, troubles and the grief and the disappointments of everyday life for mental disorder. That there's a tendency lately to think that everyone who has suffering must be suffering from a mental disorder. And that's just not the way it is. That the epidemiological studies, uh, some of them done in Australia and New Zealand, show very high rates of mental disorder. But they're based on telephone surveys of the general population without the clinical judgment of whether the symptoms present are of sufficient severity and duration to warrant the diagnosis of mental disorder. Mm. So the reported rates of 20 to 25% of mental disorder in the general population in any given year, I think are terribly inflated. Not, there's not a clinical filter to be able to um, separate those that have emotional distress that's part of normal everyday experience from those who have a mental disorder. And the, the greatest, clearest example of this is grief. That there's a tendency more and more to diagnose grief as mental illness, mm. where, in, in my view, most people who are grieving are experiencing what's an absolutely essential mammalian expression of our ability to love and be attached. And the price of loving, the price of being attached, is to experience great loss when we lose lose a loved one. We shouldn't be misdiagnosing this and average expectable distress as mental disorder. You've talked about uh, uh, diagnostic inflation in ADHD in children and adults. Do you think there's other areas that uh, where diagnostic inflation has been a particularly particular issue for children? Yeah, the, the clearest, and for children and adults, the clearest example is, is autism and the, almost as clear as bipolar disorder that we added Asperger's syndrome, which was a sort of much milder form of classic autism to DSM-4. And DSM-5 has broadened the um, and loosened the definition even further by having an autistic spectrum. Mm -hmm. If you take classic autism, kids who have trouble talking or can't talk at all, whose behaviors are, are very preoccupied and stereotyped, um, that that rate of classic autism in children and, and infants is is something like one to two thousand to one to five thousand in the population. We did careful field studies that suggested that by adding Aspergers, we would triple the rate of autism. Instead, the rate of autism has increased by fifty times. Wow! The, uh, number of people diagnosed now with autism is fifty times greater than before DSM four just thirty years ago. And the reason for that is that there's a spectrum between people who are shy, withdrawn, nerdy, um, less interested in other people than they are in, in technical aspects of life, but are completely normal, within the range of normal, that they are now included in the autism, autism diagnosis. And we know that the autism diagnosis is currently used as over-inclusive by two facts. One is that if you have 
two evaluators diagnosing the same patient at a given moment, their level of agreement about autism is now very low. And if you have the same person diagnosed over time with autism, there's a 50-50 chance that in a later evaluation, they will no longer be considered autistic, even though this is meant to be a lifetime diagnosis. So that the, uh, the evidence is clear that we're over-diagnosing autism. It's become a, a kind of bad diagnosis, very much um, influenced by the, uh, the internet. And that many resources that might be used in, in a uh, better way are now devoted to the overtreatment, overdiagnosis of autism. This was furthered by school services. So at least in the States, if you have a diagnosis of autism, you're likely to get a tremendous amount of individual attention in a school system that will otherwise have 35 kids running wild in the classroom. And so for many parents and many children, the diagnosis itself is a ticket to a better education. In Australia, we have what's called the NDIS, and uh, which is a national disability scheme. And um, there has been some suggestion that uh, the diagnosis of autism is given um, by some people so they can access the money, the funding, if you like, to provide support for kids who might otherwise have some difficulties in the classroom who wouldn't get support. So it's a similar thing. And, and I'm all for the kids getting support. Yeah. But they didn't require a diagnosis of autism to get it because that diagnosis has tremendous lifetime consequences for many kids, reducing the way the family see them, teachers see them, the way they see themselves. So the stigma and harms of the diagnosis have to be balanced against the increased support. And I would love for them to get the support, but not require a psychiatric diagnosis to access it. Well, whatever happened to Quirky? So it, it's just going back to what you said about the diagnosis here of the change, adding Asperger's and then going to the spectrum. Is this been an un unintended consequence of these shifts to just in, in, increase the size of the bucket of people who now can go in, can fit into this category of autism who really perhaps don't need a diagnosis at all? Because you might need a bit of support, but certainly don't need a diagnosis. You know, one of the problems is that the diagnoses are pushed by the researchers in each area, and a researcher in the area develops a kind of love affair with their diagnosis, and it becomes a kind of pet that they become promoters of. And so the, I've dealt with thousands of, of uh, diagnostic experts over the years. I never had one come up and say, you know, my diagnosis is being overdone, except for Keith Connors and ADHD. My diagnosis is over being done. I'd like to cut yeah. down, yeah. tighten the definition. Always pushing the boundary, trying to increase the, um, the, the diagnostic purview of their pet. And what this leads to is a system that's filled with diagnoses that were promoted by the individuals who are in love with them and do research in them. The researchers in any given area always see the benefits of their diagnosis, never see the risks, and also are very blind and insensitive to the fact that any new diagnosis will definitely have unintended harmful consequences. That if any DSM diagnosis can be misused, it will be misused. And the experience teaches that new diagnoses always are misused. And so the, my, my tendency is to be very conservative about adding new diagnoses, conservative about reducing the thresholds for existing diagnoses, and the current system is on the bloated side.
Mm. You always have to balance missed patients from mislabeled patients when you're thinking about diagnoses and thinking about the greater good to the greater number. The researchers in any given area are always worried about missed patients. They're not worried about mislabeled patients. Yeah. And I think the system as a whole has to be worried about the mislabeled patients because that's the direction. And Australia actually has a very good, the best, I think, system in the world for establishing diagnostic criteria because the criteria in Australia are not done by the experts. The uh, specialty societies are not in charge. It's done by groups of people who are expert in deciding how the literature suggests we should be using diagnoses, not done by the people who've done the research themselves. Interesting. I've got a bit of a long question here, so uh, if you can bear with me, because um, it's pretty clear, I think, that I'm a, a bit of a fan of yours, a bit of fangirl moment happening, although I'm, I'm a bit too tired to be too much fangirl at the moment. It's very late here in Australia. But um, uh, your book, uh, Saving Normal, I, I think I purchased it thanks to Amazon at the same time I bought my DSM-5. Um, so I was educated in both ways very early on when DSM-5 came out. But anyway, this is a, a, a something I want to pose to you. It has been suggested to me that there is actually no such thing as diagnostic inflation or conflation or no financial incentives of indeed pathologizing of normal, as we've talked about, especially in the context of autism and perhaps ADHD. But that the recent increase of diagnoses in this area represents a sort of a catch-up that it's at least, at least par partially related to women, for example, whose children are now being diagnosed with autism and ADHD and they're reflecting on the similarities of their own experience with their children and seeking a diagnosis for themselves. Well, I think it's true that, that uh, increased awareness of both of these conditions would lead to the proper diagnosis of people who previously were missed. So I think that's a good thing, but mm -hmm. it's a question of balance. In, reaching out and now defining and diagnosing and treating the individuals who were previously missed, how often are we over-treating people who are being mislabeled? Mm -hmm. And I think that, that I mentioned before with the uh, kitty studies that the youngest kid in the class is twice as likely yes. to get the doctor. There's no way in the world of explaining that except the over-diagnosis. Mm, countries, there are millions of kids involved in these studies. There's absolutely no way of explaining that except immaturity is being labeled as a mental disorder and troubles in classroom order are being converted to a mental disorder in the one kid rather than chaos in the classroom. And similarly with, with autism, the fact that there's such low uh, reliability of diagnosis at any given moment when you have multiple raters and such low stability of diagnosis over time or absolute proof that it's being overdiagnosed. So that I, I'm sensitive to and, and, and um, appreciative of the fact that some people get the diagnosis now who would have been missed. That's good. But in the process, we're way overshot in the other direction. You're listening to Clinically Thinking, where the best therapists and the best thinkers in clinical psychology share their knowledge and experience with clinicians worldwide. Learn about upcoming episodes and find out more about our guests by following the Clinically Thinking Facebook page. Now, back to the show. Clinical psychology is known for clinical formulation as a preference over diagnosis as a way to inform treatment. 
we often work along with psychiatrists in hospitals and private practice settings and have a shared shared diagnostic language. What are your thoughts about that approach? Yeah, I, I'm all for formulation. Actually, we almost did a book after the SM3 that would have been formulation that would be supplementary to diagnosis. And um, most of my life has been interested in, in, in um, how do we formulate. Diagnosis is what different people have in common. Formulation is what's specific to this particular person. Right. I see them as complementary. Neither is necessary, or both of them are necessary, and neither by itself is sufficient. I don't trust clinicians who worship DSM diagnosis and do only DSM diagnosis and don't do a complete biopsychosocial formulation. So I'm very promoting the biopsychosocial model. I also don't cl trust clinicians who only do formulation and say, I don't need diagnosis. The reason for this, every patient who presents with emotional symptoms could have those emotional symptoms because of medical illness, neurological illness, medication, side effect of withdrawal, or substance use, side effect of withdrawal. So the very first thing that has to be done with every single patient before beginning the diagnostic process, the use of medication or psychotherapy is, are these symptoms due to a medical problem? Are these symptoms due to the medications the person's taking. <clears throat> in older people, any new symptom is much more likely to be due to a medical problem or medication than anything else. That before thinking about any psych primary psychiatric disorder with anyone who's uh, senior, the first thought should be what medical problem might be causing this, what medication. With younger people, the first thought before thinking about any other diagnosis is what drugs are they taking? Because street drugs are so prominent a role in the um, symptom formation in young kids, they, they have to be the first thought. You can't do a formulation on the symptoms unless you first rule those two things right, out. Right, right. And when, when we get to the other, the more primary psychiatric diagnoses in the system, there's a tremendous difference in both psychotherapy and medication treatment for panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. A fair number of people will meet criteria for both, but each of these requires a different approach. There's a great difference between treating anxiety disorder and depression, that the diagnostic system is a guide to which techniques and which medications will be most helpful. And I don't think you can jump to a formulation bypassing those steps. Right, but you, and you're saying that both those systems are important. You want the data to agree, so you want good diagnosis, and you want then individual formulation. Okay. Exactly. And they go together. A competent clinician can't really be competent if they're just doing diagnosis. They can't be competent just doing formulation. A competent clinician is going to be equally good and equally dependent on both. There's some thoughts that in the diagnostic systems, such as DSM and ICD, are I kind of run their, I run their course and it's time for a, a more dimensional model or a completely different model, say the power threat meaning framework, for example, um, as a way of identifying difference and divergence? Well, I've given this a lot of thought. I, my first paper on this was 40 years ago on um, personality disorders, pointing out that the um, categorical system of diagnosis was clunky, clunky for two reasons. One, that there aren't clear boundaries between people who have normal personality functioning with 
a particular characteristic of um, you know, being more obsessive or being more narcissistic or so forth. Normal narcissism, normal compulsivity versus disordered personality. And I said then that we would need to eventually do a dimensional system of personality that would be more accurate because giving numbers rather than names allows you to deal with the fact that there's a continuity uh, across people rather than sharp boundaries. In 94, we wrote a paper called um, Personality Dimensions, not um, if, but when. Okay. That it was certainly going to be the case that we would go to a dimensional system. I had brought together in the late 80s all of the uh, people who had promoted different dimensional systems of personality diagnosis, kept them in the room for three days and said, we're not leaving here until we come to some agreement about which personality dimensions we should be studying and, and diagnosing. And I could get no agreement. DSM-5 tried to come up with a dimensional system and it was a, a tremendous failure. Now, the reason for this is very clear and, and, and important to understand that human beings by evolution have been taught to name things. We're not good at dealing with numbers. Hmm. That the um, computers are wonderful at dealing with numbers and less good at dealing with names. I think that as AI takes over our field, and I'm convinced it will, as AI takes over our field, there will be dimensional systems that manipulate complex numbers to come up with an individual diagnosis and a plan for patients. Computer silicon intelligence is very good at this, but we're not. Clinicians do not do well with dimensional systems. That the categories, even though they're much less accurate than dimensions, are much more vivid. And the way people think getting a diagnosis leads to a, a call to action. The dimensional systems tend to lead to confusion. Clinicians don't like them. I don't think we're inherently able to use them very well. And the existing dimensional systems have not been very useful. So there are lots of people doing research in this area, but none of them have jumped to clinical care, partly because the systems are too complicated and clinicians don't understand them. Perhaps some um, DSM-6 might have worked out the dimensions. And I think it would be DSM-6 that would be geared to AI, not to human diagnostics. Very interesting. There's a trend to rebrand some disorders as examples of neurodiversity. And we're talking about particularly autism or ADHD. If we try to move away from stigmatizing people with lifelong diagnosis, is, is this, in your opinion, a helpful direction to take? Well, I think this has been, it's, it's argued, and I agree with the argument, that the fact that we're way over diagnosing certain mental disorders, in effect, reduces the stigma of having those disorders. So if 3% of the population has ADHD, there, there may be more stigma attached to them than if 10 or 12% of the population has ADHD. If the autism diagnosis is given to one in 2,000 people, it's going to be very stigmatizing. If it's given to one in 38 people, it's no longer a big deal having the diagnosis. So that I think part of the reason that so many people who get the labels are happy with the label is it helps explain what was previously personal and individual they feel part of a larger group. They feel understood in a way they didn't before. Individuals may feel happy having a diagnosis because it seems to explain their problems and it makes them part of a larger group. They're not alone. But there's a flip side. Having a diagnosis often has harmful unintended consequences for the individual. It, it can haunt an individual. Getting a wrong diagnosis early in life can haunt an individual for life. 
very hard to erase diagnoses, even when they're wrong. And often there are consequences in later life. And also the person's feeling like I'm damaged goods because I have this diagnosis, when in fact they would have been perfectly fine without it. The reduction in stigma that comes from overdiagnosing comes at a price. Okay, it seems to me though that we kind of are both ways. If people are neurodiverse and it's kind of just a normal uh, uh, variation in human behaviour, which is great, then we're saying they're just kind of a, a little further along the scale in terms of normal behaviours, which seems to kind of be at odd of the idea of having a, a mental health diagnosis, you know, which that says that that behaviour is disordered and in need of treatment. Is the difference between the two just a matter of degrees? Where do we draw the line here? Yeah, well, the problem is that there is no clear line. That the um, all of the mental disorder diagnoses have fuzzy boundaries. Um, the fuzzy boundaries extend to, extend to normality, and I think that part of the problem has been that the insurance system has required a diagnosis in order to authorize payment for treatment. Mm. So there's a tendency to overdiagnose people because that's the only way you can be compensated. In the best of all worlds, this would be loosened. I don't think that psychotherapy is useful only for people with mental disorders. I think the whole coaching profession, I don't know if it's become popular in Australia, but the whole coaching profession is recognition filling a void because many people need help, need psychotherapy, need coaching, but don't have a clear-cut mental disorder. Well, in the best of all possible worlds, I would not have the insurance system dictate who gets a mental disorder and who doesn't. I would have psychotherapy available to people without having the requirement of a mental disorder diagnosis. And I think that part of the issue is that most people want and most people need only brief psychotherapy. So I think that making brief psychotherapy easily accessible without a diagnosis would make treatment a lot easier for patients to access. It would reduce the stigma of getting a mental disorder diagnosis. It would reduce up-diagnosing in order to get payment. And I think that the system overall would be more efficient if there were more brief therapy and less long-term therapy. Brief therapy is a very effective modality, and it's underdone. In Australia, um, Medicare we have here, we have a universal health care thank you, Australian government, um, pays for um, 10 sessions a year for um, various mental health clinicians. Psychiatrists is 50, but for psychologists it's 10. And and the, you have to have a diagnosis for that. And so people do seek, I think, a, a diagnosis to, um, to get access to that service. They can certainly see a clinician without that uh, mental health plan, but often people want it because it, it gives them some, you know, government... Um, supported service you know so it does lead to I think a tendency to make a diagnosis because then you get that service subsidized but there there's a brief service I think most psychologists would, would argue that 10 sessions is not enough it used to be 18 and that was kind of reasonable because you could do something in 18 sessions you know treat something as an evidence-based treatment um, but 10 was not enough well my, my sense about this is that individual clinicians will always want more sessions but if you take a public health view of this, yeah. that it's the most important thing is easy access to treatment. Mm. And um, I, I'd be very, I have a, a very great long standing love for brief therapy, partly because it eliminates waiting lists. And I think that 
even though the individual clinician would wish to have more sessions with that patient, if you're looking at the system as a whole, the one thing you never want to have is waiting lists because people are most able to make major changes and most need help when they're in the midst of an episode. And if the only way you can reduce or eliminate waiting lists is to have a fewer number of sessions per patient, even though I understand the um, feelings of the individual therapist and patient, they, they would like more time. As a system-wide way of getting the most benefit to the most people, I would see that as, as, as beneficial. And I, I wouldn't require, I mean, this is where the insurance companies influence the, the payment mechanism influences, over-influences diagnosis. I wouldn't necessarily require that there be a, um, a mental disorder diagnosis before allowing the psychotherapy. I'm interested to know what you had in mind when you say brief therapy, brief psychotherapy. I think from a public health perspective, the number of sessions that are allowed will depend on the number of people who need help and the number of therapists who are available, number of, of dollars available to support them. But I think that brief, most studies that have been done show that the average patient stays in treatment only for about five or six sessions. Mm. And part of this may be economic, but part of it, I think, is that not everyone wants to be in long-term, longer-term therapy. Oh. So I, I, let me just finish. When I've run brief therapy programs, we, we've tried to be as uh, flexible as possible. And often what we've done is established six sessions as the beginning with um, additional sessions allocated if they're needed for particular patients. Mm -hmm. But if you establish a six-session beginning, a very large number of patients will feel much better, enough better that they won't want more therapy. Some of that will be regression to the mean. Some of that will be the support they get from the therapy. And some of that will be the, the insights they have. But I think that the um, overall point is that even though individual therapists will always want more treatment, even though individual patients will always want more treatment. The most crucial thing is to make treatment easily accessible to everyone so that there are no waiting lists. I, I totally agree with you. However, I have one point of contention there. What about the evidence for the treatment, say, of uh, uh, depression or uh, PTSD, which might say that the, the required dose of therapy might be, say, 15 or 18 sessions what do you say to that? You only get six sessions. You only get a third of the dose. Well, I, and that's why I would like a system that individualizes, that right. you begin with the idea that most people are going to do well with six sessions. You establish the expectations that for most people, six sessions will be adequate. But that people with severe problems, people with, with the 5% of people will require lifelong. Okay. So it, it needs, there's not one set number of sessions. There's not one size fits all. And I think that when um, the, the, if a system allows for, we're going to do our best to eliminate waiting lists by having a six session, I would do six sessions as a starting point to have six sessions that are, you don't need to have any justification. You don't need to have a mental disorder yeah. that we're going to provide six free sessions without any kind of filter. Mm -hmm. But then after the six sessions, we'll have filters that will try to figure out who are the people in the 5% who may need lifelong treatment, and they're the 30 sessions a year or more may make perfect sense. Who are the people who are going to need 10, 18 more sessions and have an approval process for additional sessions that's based on severity of need and progress that's being made? One thing about mental health is one size 
never fits all. It's all yeah, indeed. I want to ask a couple of questions before we finish about the risks of self-diagnosis. In your book, you encourage consumers to be educated and to do their research about their symptoms and question their clinicians and seek a second, a third or you know, a fourth opinion if necessary. Where do you think the line is between, if there is one, between being a well-informed consumer and just erroneous self-diagnosis? It's a, it's a terrible problem now with the internet, yeah, and um, I don't have a good solution to it. The, the information on the internet can be both wonderful and terrible. So I don't necessarily trust any given one clinician. I want the patient to know themselves enough so that they can make informed decisions and negotiate effectively with clinicians. I think the family needs to be informed enough to be helpful as, in support and helpful in if, if the primary care doctor sees a patient for 10 minutes, you can't trust his judgment. 10-minute evaluation is not going to be an accurate evaluation. The patients have to be well-informed. On the other hand, the Internet has, has spawned all sorts of, of groups and misinformation. Mm. It's created a, uh, a terrible eating disorders mm. by um, spreading the idea that Healthy eating requires uh, a diet that's going to re result in very great weight loss, and that's norm normative mm. rather than seeing it as a, a, a problem. Uh, the internet has spread the diagnosis of autism. Mm. That I think that and multiple personality, best example. We have flare-ups of multiple personality, usually with movies and books. Now it's with the internet. Mm. So I think the internet can be, of course, as it is for everything else in life, politics especially, a source of excellent information, a source of misinformation. And at this point, it's a wild west with no control. And the people who become informed are easily misinformed. So people have to be skeptical of everything, skeptical of consultants who see them for 10 minutes, skeptical of websites, using their best common sense and the support of their families to figure out, with the help of the um, physicians and psychotherapists they're seeing, What's the best individual program for them? Any uh, hints to clinicians seeing clients who come to them saying, I've done some research on the internet and I've decided that I, I, have, uh, I have ADHD and or autism and I want you to, particularly in ADHD, I want you to you know, write the script. You know, what, any tips for us clinicians working in that space? I think an absolutely essential skill in clinicians is being able to educate empathically and to have ready, um, clear, concise explanations that are convincing. Mm. So I think that that's always been an absolute requirement for clinicians. And it's probably more important now than ever because patients come in so armed with things that have been produced by drug companies, produced by internet uh, chat groups that have their own special acts to grind mm. and clinicians have to be terrific educators mm. and form the most important two things in the clinician i think are forming strong relationships quickly getting the patient's attention and then being able to explain things in clear common sense terms and i think that the first session is usually the most important session because if it's not done well there won't be a second session indeed Clinicians have to be experts at, at being able to engage people and explain to them the best of our knowledge in the clearest and simplest terms, never using jargon. 
I can see why you haven't retired. <laughs> Do you feel like a, a, a prophet crying in the wilderness? Um, well, it, it, it's a tough question. I mean, I feel my career was a failure. I mean, I think that during the last, I've been involved in psychiatry now for, I guess, 55 years, mm, wow. beginning with medical school. And um, the patients I saw at the beginning of my career were housed in horrible snake pit state psychiatric facilities, mm. or similar to those in Australia and New Zealand, that the um, care was terrible mm. or, or, or non-existent. The units smelled and were dirty. The, it was just a horrible place to be, and they, many of the patients didn't belong there. They were warehoused there. Mm. And these days, um, there was great enthusiasm in the 70s with the community mental health movement that patients could lead decent lives outside the hospital. The new medications and support in the community would allow them to have a dignified life that previously they lacked in these horrible hospitals. But the funding was ripped away. And patients now who would have been in terrible hospitals are now in even more horrible jails or living wild on the right. streets. So it, it, the, the field is not, although we've had this terrific science advance, that science advance, because the brain is so complicated, is not translated into better treatments. And instead, we have even worse social conditions for patients. The hope in the field, and very the proudest day in my career, was being part of the funding uh, at NIMH for the first studies in CBT and DBT. And there we had very few dollars, but those dollars led to enormous benefits for tens of millions of patients as CBT and DBT became popular throughout the world. Mm. At the same time, NIMH has spent tens of billions of dollars on biological um, molecular, biological, genetic, and imaging studies, and none of those dollars is really translated to treatments that help patients very much. So I think that the effort to understand how mental disorders are caused has failed because the brain is so complicated. I think that we've gone away from a biopsychosocial model. There's a greater split now between psychiatry and psychology than there ever was. Mm. So it's very hard to be optimistic as a field for the field as a whole on the other hand there's nothing more magical than being in the room with a patient patients teach us how to be better therapists they teach us how to be better people indeed i agree and so the, the time spent with patients is precious and individual practitioners should treasure the opportunity to improve themselves as people and as therapists through the contacts they have with patients no therapist should ever be dis discouraged no therapist should ever be bored, even though the system as a whole really sucks. Mm. It's it's an honour to be in to hold space with a client. I think, isn't it? Yep. I understand that you have a podcast uh, yourself on talking therapies. Can you tell us about that? Oh yeah, and Marvin Goldfried has been a pioneer in trying to integrate psychotherapies. So there's been a terrible problem in the history of psychotherapy that they've been scattered into atomistic different schools of thought, usually with a founder, a school uh, training program, and people identify themselves as CBT therapists or DBT therapists or psychodynamic therapists or systems therapists. There are actually 15, 50 
alphabetically therapies available in the field. Every, every therapy becomes a usually three-letter alphabetic denomination, and these are like sex in a church. Yes. And people are trained in one area or another area. What, what this does is reduce the understanding that the relationship is what the most important thing. And if you're just trained in one area, you're going to focus on, you know, robotically doing that kind of therapy. You miss the beauty of the relationship to some degree. Plus the fact that a good therapist needs to know all the techniques because different patients require different techniques and they're not sort of like in hermetically sealed little categories. So what Marvin has done throughout his career, and we met on the NIMH committee that was funding CBT and DBT 40 years ago and become friends over it. We do in Talking Therapy, this podcast that we have, is try to discuss the concrete areas of psychotherapy. You know, should patients, should therapists give advice to patients? What should a first session be like? Each, each of our podcasts is on a particular technical aspect of psychotherapy. What works, what doesn't work, how long should therapies be, how to terminate therapies. So it, it, it's our attempt to pass on what we've learned over the years. One of the things I've noticed is that great therapists from the different schools of thought look very similar when they're doing therapy. If you take Aaron Beck doing a, a treatment session, and you take yeah. Marshall Linehan doing a treatment session. You take some of the you know, Silvano Arietti when he did treatment sessions. The great therapists from different schools look alike when they're with much more alike than with than when they're when they're with with patients than they do when they write, and certainly look a lot more alike than their followers who tend to do very strict and inflexible treatments based on what they've learned in the manual. So my message to psychotherapists is don't be slavishly devoted to a given school. Don't think that one school is better than another because we have so many tie scores in the psychotherapy literature. Focus on the relationship and learn many different techniques so you don't have a hammer that's always finding the same nail. Excellent. We want to be clinicians, not technicians, right? So is that is that podcast called Talking Therapy? Is that right? Talking Therapy, and it's both um, on video and also on audio along. Fantastic. Well, I think that brings us to a nice place to stop. So thank you so much for your time. We're very grateful. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the listeners will love it. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye.